0: Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On The Wing Podcast. I'm Bob St. Pierre coming at you from SHOT Show in Las Vegas, and I'm going to divulge a little bit of a man crush right now. Oh, God. One one of the guys that I respect and admire most in this industry, sitting across the table from me for kind of a Pheasant Fest preview episode of On The Wing. And that's Land Tawny, President and CEO of the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Land. Oh, Bob, come on, man. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, I'm, well, you know it's genuine. What I you do. guys are doing is absolutely off the hook. I'm a big fan, I'm a proud member, and I'm thrilled. You know, not only to be talking to you, but um, that you're going to be a part of Pheasant Fest this year. So thanks for making time, man. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm honored to be on the
1: podcast. I'm, uh, thank you for the kind words. And uh, I had a lot of fun being a field with you this year, too.
0: So <laughs> That's the more true. I, the more I get to know you, and we didn't kill anything, at least I we, didn't. Well, <laughs> we did. It. My dogs kind of blew out a grouse that you were going to get a shot at. It's all right, though, man. It was, like,
1: awesome walking around the woods, okay. and I think... Watching the way that you are with your dogs always tells a lot about a person, right? So um I respect you before that, but I respect you even more
0: now. <laughs> well thank you. That's yeah. right. We did get a chance to hunt uh on the edge of the boundary waters yeah. for a, a kind of a half a day. Yeah. We got into pretty good woodcock migration. We did,
1: and I like I I, I still have not even pulled the trigger on a woodcock, but man, they're so cool. And like the like where they were and then like uh how crafty or nimble maybe they are in the woods i don't know the best way to describe yeah. them but uh, it was pretty fun
0: it was fun and, and that, from that point on i had to go back i had to go to a board meeting in south dakota but you went into the boundary waters did and you guys had like two gorgeous days and then winter arrived
1: um, well we got out of there right before the winter hit man <laughs> right. and it, but it was unbelievable and i shot my first squirrel like i didn't grow up hunting small game really you know it was big game of birds and I uh, shot my first squirrel, and then Lucas was there, you know, yeah. the, the chef, and he cooked it up, you know, over an open fire, and, man, it was delicious. So That's right. He
0: cooked the uh, – because we – I think we had shot three woodcock – and he cooked those in the boundary waters, and you guys also got Some a duck and a sprucey, yep.
1: and and then the, and then the squirrel. So it was like a, a nice little smorgasbord.
0: <laughs> That's got to be the only woodcock, spruce, <laughs> oh <God>, squirrel yeah. <laughs> buffet in the boundary but waters. But I will say, way.
1: man, it might be something that people go to because it was delicious, especially yeah. the way he cooked it. it yeah, good. well,
0: Lucas Lucas Leaf is who we we're talking about. He's the. Uh, executive director, a sportsman for the Boundary Waters, and, yeah. and a chef in his previous life. And that comes through even over a, a, a campfire. He's Absolutely. He's terrific. Absolutely. Um, so, I, so I teased this is going to be kind of a Pheasant Fest preview edition. Awesome. And that's because you guys, along with Minnesota DNR and the Rough Grouse Society, have joined us in our inaugural Public Lands Pavilion at National Pheasant Fest coming to uh, the Minneapolis Convention Center. This will be the first time we've ever held this uh, attraction on the show floor, and it's natural having BHA be integral, integral, (laughs) easy for me to say, right, Right. Uh, for this very first one. So uh, um, I want to get into the Public Lands Pavilion, but I I first want to start with uh, kind of a 101 level about pack country hunters and anglers, because I know there's an awful lot of folks out there within our listenership and our membership that are probably members of BHA. In fact, I know there are a lot of them, but I also know that there's a group that probably hasn't heard of you guys because you're relatively the youngest, um, conservation group on the scene. So tell us about the origin because it, BHA, much like Lucas leaves cooking uh, over a campfire, BHA started on over a campfire.
1: Oh, man. What a great segue. And I think that you know, anybody that's listening to this has hopefully been around a campfire late at night and kind of solving the world's problems. You know, you're looking up into the stars and those, I think there's a Olson quote about how flames kind of go up into the ethers, mm-hmm. you know, and like they're joining flames from thousands of eons of other people that have had fires. And so fires are like these gathering places and... In 2004 in Oregon there was uh, some folks around the campfire that really looked at the playing field they looked at the good work that pheasants forever is doing that ducks unlimited the mule deer foundation all these kind of groups but nobody was really focused specifically on public lands and public waters and so out of that kind of campfire came the idea of backcountry hunters and anglers and for the first probably i don't know seven eight years just strictly kind of a volunteer organization about Mm -hmm. a thousand members um, really dedicated folks at that time i was out national at working at uh, for national wildlife federation we do fly-ins out to dc and i'd always make sure i was talking to folks at bha because they you know while there wasn't many of them Mm -hmm. they knew their place they knew how to communicate it and they were dang passionate about it when they went to dc so they were very effective when they were up on the hill so i was attracted i was an early adopter you know a member early on and then uh 2013, um, which is crazy. I can't believe it. I'm coming up on my seven years. It's like flown by in some ways, and then I've aged quite a bit. It's almost like a president. I've got a lot more white in my beard. Um, I feel you. Yeah, right? It's like a kind of a new thing, and I'm embracing it, right? right. You know, I'm not going to be dying this thing. Um, plus, I don't think they make one to match my weird looking beard. <laughs> um, but, and then, you know, so, and so. This impetus, I think, around that campfire that still carries on today is that there's basically three areas that we focus on, and the first one is pretty easy, and it's access and opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so that's like keeping public lands in public hands. That's expanding the resource. I mean, there's the Land and Water Conservation Fund. You know, you're able to add to the public estate. Um, There's the kind of our recruitment, retention, and reactivation efforts within that where we're focusing really on college kids and that 20 to 40-something. So that's like that first pretty big bucket of access and opportunity. Right. Put our stream access stuff in there as well. Then you go into uh, fish and wildlife habitat, which is a huge, gigantic bucket. You know, it goes all the way from like local on the ground projects to the Clean Water Act. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we play dab a little bit in the Farm Bill. I think that's a place where we look to you guys' expertise and kind of want to add our voice to that. Sure. Um, but you know, big kind of conservation pieces, and then our third bucket, which is probably the hardest to describe, but it's a very important one, is our fair chase bucket, and um, really trying to you know promote fair chase principles. Mm-hmm and then looking at things that are super egregious that don't make any sense for uh fair chase like the use of drones for hunting and scouting gotcha. and and that's and so that's probably the hardest one to describe and it's kind of uh, one that we that we don't i guess we don't do as much in mm-hmm. but it's definitely an important piece of what we do
0: it's interesting because most folks really um Connect you with the first bucket. Absolutely. Right? Like, Absolutely. I mean, you guys have kind of staked the flag in, um, in the ground and said, we're your public lands advocate group and, and you've yeah. been super successful in that regard
1: yeah I think it's uh we've also the timing you know I think has been interesting you know with kind of the I think there's more awareness around public land hunting than mm-hmm. there ever has been um and I think that's partly because of the work that we've done but a bunch of other folks yeah uh, we had
0: Randy Newberg on um yeah. podcast last um the last episode and you know he was part of that movement really early on as well
1: and that kind of do-it-yourself kind of like yeah. hunting you know yeah. and and Randy man I wish I could crawl inside of his brain and like just take some of that stuff out and put it in mind but um he's so smart but i think so you have i think the education that happened then you had things um, like the Malheur takeover at the Mm -hmm. national wildlife refuge in oregon you know and where you have some people come in and say we want to you know return these lands to the people well those were national wildlife refuge lands that were set aside you know for all americans We pay taxes on those, our duck stamps pay for that, like who are you returning them to? Right. right? And so there was this idea of like who is a public landowner and that's kinda where that came out of. And so I think teaching people that, you know, you may not have, you know, grown up with a lot of money, you may not have married into private land But the 640 million acres, we all own that, and you are a public landowner, right? And it's up to us. And so that I think was helpful. And then when so the t-shirt concept that exploded came out of the occupation, I didn't realize that. Absolutely. Okay. Because it was we were very you know we were frustrated. They were you know they were kind of controlling the narrative and talking about how they were returning this land to the people. And I'm like, man, no we own that right like we right. are public landowners, and that kind of like where that all came out of and then we have a t-shirt company downstairs in our office complex and they whipped it out right away and uh, you know joe how Ro- many of those have you guys oh so I, dude i wish <laughs> i had a I wish i had a number for you i'll tell you when uh, joe rogan wore it yeah uh, they went through the roof yeah um, yeah so i think there was the malware piece and then when uh, uh mr Schaeffitz from utah tried to sell three million acres of public land in the west yeah introduced a bill on a wednesday um, just got hammered for a couple weeks and then you know those couple weeks later pulls that back right and it's like okay I've heard you the people you know and then use the hashtag public you know keep it public and his uh and public landowner and his kind of mea culpa like it's my fault and I will not do this again and so I think we've I think there's been a couple combinations there of why this has happened. Is that one there's more education, and then two there's been pressures on public mm-hmm. lands, and there always has. You know, mm-hmm. I think the origin story of Theodore Roosevelt and kind of like setting kind of this conservation legacy into motion with our public lands in particular. Like there was folks that did not want him to do that then, right? right. It was the it was basically the timber barons at that point, and they wanted to rape and pillage five western states in particular, Montana being one of them, my home state. And Roosevelt was like, nah, you can, you know, you can harvest timber there, but you can't rape and pillage. We're going to do this in a responsible way. Mm -hmm. You know, the most amount, I think it's like the best use for the most amount of people for the longest amount of time. Like Everpin Cho and him kind of put that together. Well, people fought him doing that. And so I, I just want people to know, like, this has been something that's, one, it's been very thoughtful how it's happened. And, um... And it didn't happen by accident, and now it's our turn to like kind of carry it forward. And so I think BHA is right in the sweet spot, all that happening. And, I, you know, I'm, there's lots of other reasons I think we've been successful, but those are the ones that I think have really been, I think, uh, outside influences for us.
0: So I want to talk about BHA's, some of the statistics and numbers, but you bring up Theodore Roosevelt, and it, it brought to mind a question for you. Yeah. Do you think we'll ever have a president that has kind of a world view from a environment and natural resources perspective, like Theodore Roosevelt ever again?
1: It's a great question. Uh, you know, I think Roosevelt came to that naturally, right? Like, I mean, he, a kid with asthma that, you know, went to the outdoors to make right. himself stronger. Like, Goes
0: to North Dakota and has an epiphany, right? Well, he goes,
1: and the reason he went to North Dakota is because his mom and, and uh, wife died on the same day. And he was like, I got to get out. And then goes to the Badlands. And that's where he got his head right. And then also was like, man, every American, you know, should be able to experience this. this find the solace that he just did. Right. That right. like was kind of the basis. Peace. Yeah, and like the adventure and challenge. So the question: Will we ever have another? One? I think there's people out there that share that. I think there's one in particular and his name is Senator Martin Heinrich from New Mexico. Mm. I think he's got a world view of uh, conservation. I don't think there's probably anybody in the Senate that one is fighting as hard as, as he is, or has the knowledge that he does about this kind of conservation in general and from all aspects. Yeah. Um, he's come to that naturally as well. Um, and so I think like he's somebody, you know, but I like for him to become president, who knows, you know? And right. I think, um, we desperately almost need that. Right, again. that's what I... You know, it's like a, a next coming, and, like, you know, that was 100 years ago, mm-hmm. 120 years ago. Like, it's a time, like, these things go in cycles, and it almost feels like these pressures are mounting, and it's time for that to happen again, and, you know, I don't... There's definitely... That's not represented in this next election cycle that I see
0: right, right now. Right, so. the, c- That's where the thought comes from, too, though. It's like history sort of repeats itself, and i I can definitely see, and I'm an optimist at heart, yeah. right yeah. and I could see that there being a time where somebody's like, you know the greatest thing about this country is our natural resources absolutely. It always has been absolutely, you know, and look at these wide open spaces, and why don't we embrace it like we once did, you know, and it, I think that that is latent within our culture, and it's just got to find the right he or she that taps into that and you know kind of brings that to the forefront from from a leadership perspective.
1: Absolutely. You know, and I think that, you know, there's folks listening to this and we hunt and we fish and we recreate on our public lands. Um, I think they provide a lot of value for us. But there's a lot of people that don't do any of that. Right. But clean air and clean water. Mm-hmm. Like, how important is that, especially going forward as those become more finite resources? Right. And the majority of our clean water, like 70% of our streams start on public lands. Like mm. They're vitally important. And the thought of selling those off and have somebody else control our watersheds is pretty scary to me. And so I think, you know, if, again, people that don't hunt or fish don't recreate at all, I feel like they get zero value from these public lands, mm-hmm. like the outdoor economy the you know, taxes, all these things. If you take all that away and you add in the clean air and clean water, like mm-hmm. that's essential. And so I think, you know, that, again as we put more and more stress on those things they become that much more important and you know we're unique in the world with our public lands mm-hmm. and so hopefully there is that recognition because if you know i think roosevelt talked about it, like visionary wise that you know if we do this right if we do the natural resources right everything else will be okay mm-hmm. and if we screw that up like that's going to be when you know other things go bad in this right. country and so i think taking care of that and hopefully the recognition of that but clean air and clean water i think are the key to that
0: yeah everybody could sort of Identify with that. Yeah, how are you it. against clean water right, and clean right. air? Nah, man, it's like yeah. more pollution is better. Right. You know, I like
1: right. the flavor of
0: the other stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? That color looks good in my glass, right? <laughs> All right, some of the statistics uh, yeah. of BHA. You guys are in, you have chapters in forty-five states, so it's easier to ask. Where do you need help growing chapters? What are the so, five that are missing? Uh,
1: we've got right now. We've got. Uh, uh, South Carolina, Nebraska, and uh, West Virginia that are actively probably going to become chapters this next year. Okay. And then that leaves us uh, Delaware, and that leaves us uh, Hawaii. And I've already put my hand up multiple times, and I'm the boss to be sent to Hawaii for like a month to do some market research, but it just hasn't happened yet.
0: (laughs) Well, that's pretty impressive. Five states. Five uh, states. Three in the works. Three in the works. Uh, You've got over 40,000 members now. Yeah. That's, and I think I saw a stat, you're, you are um, the fastest growing conservation group out there right now.
1: We are, and I think that's a percentage thing, you know, mm-hmm. like when, you know, when, when I first started seven years ago, we had a thousand members, and it was easy for us to like double every single year when you're at a thousand to two thousand. Right on. Yeah. Last year, we went from 30 to 40, so about a 30 you know, mm-hmm. percent growth, 33 percent growth, and so that's that percentage wise, you know, and I think for us, um, You know, we were talking about this earlier. Like, we're trying to do quality over quantity, too. Like, Mm -hmm. really trying to do this where we're having personal conversations with people um, and bringing them on as members. And so far, that's working pretty well.
0: Yeah. Congratulations. You also have two provinces and a territory.
1: Yeah, so our Canadian um, brethren north of the border, you know, I think their crown lands are very, very similar to our public lands mm-hmm. here. Um, I have hunted birds up there um, and it's very similar to down here in the States. Um, and so there's this shared kind of North American conservation model kind of ethic that they already have. Right. Um, and and then their fights are less about probably people trying to take that land away from them. It's more about kind of extraction, I mm-hmm. would say. Um, and And then I would say like some you know, conflict and, like, user conflicts, I would say. Uh, so well.
0: when you s- you're talking extraction, mining and things like that. Mining and timber harvest gotcha. in particular.
1: Okay. Yeah, and, I th- and like, oil and gas, you know, especially mm-hmm. in Alberta. We have a chapter there. Gotcha. Um, but it's mostly timber, I would say, and mining in British Columbia. Um, and then Yukon, you know, there's – I think there's okay, – God. we have these – you know, become a member or become a chapter. You have all these kind of benchmarks that these chapters have to meet. And in the Yukon, I think there's only 30,000, 36,000 people in the entire territory. And so, like, our membership numbers, like, we, we, you know, we, we, just, we kind of let those lax a little bit. And they're working on issues right now just kind of um, with the Native American population up there
0: and trying to figure out how they can kind of co-manage some of these, co- these crown lands okay. so that
1: both get a benefit from them.
0: So you guys are set up where you have a chapter, like Minnesota chapter. Yep. Is, you got one in Minnesota, and yep. everybody sort of falls underneath that umbrella which is kind of different compared to say our model which is based around for the most part counties you know there's some differences where there's a big county and we'll split it into. two yeah. and, but for the most part it's based around counties why would you take the approach of one per state
1: i think so it's it, there's a couple of reasons i think first of all people really identify with the state you mm-hmm. know i mean my home state of montana man like the people love montana and so there's that piece um and then i think it's uh like there's you, some of that diversity from regional, like you bring people in with different ideas from different parts of the state, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is important. And then I think politically, when you're thinking about like at a legislative level, in particular state legislative level, it's very good to have a statewide organization versus like a local organization. That local organization can definitely have influence over that local official, mm-hmm. but a statewide that represents everybody, I think, is uh, has more influence at the state legislative level. And so that's something that you know that we work on. And I would say that, you know. It's also a matter of size. You know, when we first started these chapters, you know, it was like 10 people rose their and said, I want to be on the board. And that's all we really had. Gotcha. And now, you know, we have in Montana, we have over 4,000 members, which is our largest uh, right. state as far as membership goes. I think there's about 2,000 in Minnesota. But, uh, you know, there's a lot more hands that are being raised. Mm-hmm. And, and so then we're starting to break those down into like committees, right? And like certain towns, right? So, you know, Montana, it's in our five biggest towns that we have committees and then we're trying to also have representation in our um, uh, Fish Life and Parks regions right and so the state model though bubbles everything up and it gives you a little bit of control and yeah. also some semblance of like uh, speaking in one voice. And so I think that legis- I mean, so that's that's kind of why we did it that way. Cool. Makes sense. Um, and as our as we grow and people want to do more stuff at a local level, there's definitely opportunities to do that. But we're doing that through like committees.
0: Yeah. So I didn't know the committee part because that was going to be my next question. Like, yeah. Obviously, you state the size of Montana or Minnesota. It's like you're bored let's say in minnesota most of your board i think is based in the twin cities right so i was like they want to hold an event in rochester duluth you know aaron or mark or lucas like, uh, yeah. you know, it's I a long a, drive for a pint night right, right i yeah. got a life too man you yeah. gotta find somebody else in duluth so i didn't know the committee part of it so that, that makes sense and i
1: think it's what's cool about that is that we're also providing leadership opportunities mm-hmm. right like i think and you know, in particular for, like, young people. And so, like, if you are up in Duluth or up in Ely or something, you know, way out in the boons, there's an opportunity for you to say, hey, I want to do something for BHA, working with the state chapters. You don't have to be, you know, a a chapter leader to do that. You're a volunteer on this committee, and then you go put something together. And then what's great about that is that if you're very successful – then that is noticed mm-hmm. and it's like, well, hey, what would you think about doing, helping us over on this thing? And all of a sudden that turns into potentially being on the state board. Maybe that turns into being, you know, part of the state leadership, like as far as like chairman or, you know, co-chair of that board. And so there's this leadership pipeline that kind of naturally is starting to happen, right. which I, like to me, I think that's something, and this is getting into the weeds a little bit, but I think that's something that our community Needs to figure out is how do you provide opportunities for these 20, 30s, and 40-something that want to do something, right. but haven't been around, they don't have experience. But if you don't give them those opportunities, then they walk and they go do something else, mm-hmm. you know. And I think, you know, I have a lot of respect for the 50, 60, 70-year-olds, eight even some 80-year-olds that are still in this game. But man, you got to figure out some way to, like, one, soak up their knowledge, but also include these younger folks. Right. And I think we're, I mean, we're, I wouldn't say we're perfect at that, but we're doing an okay job at yeah, that.
0: Yeah, it, it's a lot harder to pass the baton mm-hmm. than you, I guess you think, right? Like, it, giving up part of that, uh, something you've invested so much time and heart into, to somebody else and hoping that it succeeds still. Where would we be without them, too? <laughs> right. You know, like, right. where
1: would we be? Like, I, I really, like, you and I would not be having this conversation right Right. and so there's yeah but that passing of the baton I mean I do the same thing with work sometimes you know I can't get into the details sometimes that frustrates me but you have to be comfortable with somebody else doing something that might not be exactly the way you want it done but it's actually moving the ball forward at least Right. right and sometimes in a different way that you never even saw and so I think finding those opportunities um to help teach and then empower like younger folks to get involved is super
0: important so passing the baton leads me to think that you know you you fell from a tree of apples <laughs> that uh you kind of did this for um you know th- this was part of the, um not just a lifestyle but or not just a career but a lifestyle for your family right
1: yeah so Uh, Very lucky um, to grow up in a family. My parents were the first full-time conservation lobbyists at the state legislature in Montana. Helped start a couple organizations. My dad went to law school late in life and uh, then was the first lawyer for the Elk Foundation. So wrote their articles of incorporation and bylaws when they were up in Troy, Montana, when they were nothing, like living out of a... Just an idea, and then he. Um, what
0: was your dads er, Is your dad still around? He, he's
1: passed away. Okay, Twenty, you know. Uh, thank you. It's uh, twenty-five years this no year, kidding. which is what's his. Crazy. Fi- what was his first Phil name? Taney. Phil
0: Tawney. Phil. So he wrote the bylaws of RMEF.
1: Yep, and then he was their lawyer from eighty-five when they first started till ninety-five when he passed away. Wow, and so I, it was pretty rad for me to be able to watch that growth and like Bob Munson was their leader and I mean, they were literally just hustling, man. And it, like there's a lot of similarities about the growth and also the energy mm. that both organizations had at that point. And so I got to watch that. Um, my dad, you know, I was involved in conservation and conservation easements. And so I watched him do stuff on private land, work with the Elk Foundation. He was a little bit involved in politics. Uh, and then my mom, you know, she's still engaged in conservation to this day. She sits on the on a foundation in Montana. It's the largest giver of conservation money in Montana, and, hmm. and um, which she has to recuse herself when we, every time we ask for money. <laughs> um, which I bet you she's proud. How she, she is. And I think... My little sister, you've met Whitney.
0: Uh, yeah, and she, she used to work for DU, right? She used, for
1: du- she used to work for Ducks Unlimited out in D.C. Uh-huh. Um, for quite a long time. as their water um, uh, kind of lobbyist. And then moved back to Montana. Uh, they built a house in Bozeman next to, like half a block from my other sister. And she's working with the Co- Montana Conservation Voters now. And so it's really fun for me. She's 10 years younger than me. And so she was... Uh, 10 when my father passed away and so mm-hmm. I've kind of been like her older brother slash father mm-hmm. and I'm so, I mean talk about my mom being proud of me, I'm so proud of my sister in particular like she's, uh, she's a lot better um, at the politics than I am she's a lot smarter um, and uh, man she's got a drive and so she's just she's fun to be around, she makes me better I can tell you that.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. So you, you kind of take the, or you've taken the conservation world by storm as more of a dynamic speaker front person than has existed in the past? Is that is that by strategy or just hey, that's who you are?
1: <laughs> you know uh, what first, I, I mean. First, I mean I appreciate the like the sentiment. Um, taking it by storm. I mean, I, I.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you get on stage. You know, you're wearing your flat brim ball cap, and yeah. you know, you, you normally have a pint in your hand. You know, you've got a different, and part of it is your age comparatively sure. in your audience, but. Sure. You've got a different persona than has existed in the conservation world for the most part.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm a weirdo. I'm different <laughs> for sure. Um, I think it's part of my personality for sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've been a coach my entire life, soccer coach, and so like I love just kind of like that rallying, firing people up. I and mean, mm-hmm. that's half of coaching. I, you know, when I it's teaching skills. But then the other half is like getting people ready for the game and firing them up. And I think I loved the firing up part most. Yeah. And and so I think that's part of my job. And I think, you know, Howard has been a has been a very big mentor for me. Um I've known him for a long time, but especially taking this job. And partly, you know, some of the things, like, like that's partly the job as a CEO is to get out there and fire the troops up. And I think Howard is very good at that. And it's something that, like, I take the heart, you know, and I listen to him about. Yeah. I also gravitate towards it a little bit. And, you know, we're, we were such a young and small organization that, like, it was, it's like, it's been straight hustle for seven years. And you do that by getting up and standing on top of a bar and, like, preaching to the choir, yeah. you know, or, like, firing up the troops, you know. And I think that... um
0: yeah, don't get me wrong. I think Howard's terrific at yeah. it. He's just got a different style. He does it with kind of humor. and yeah. auth- I mean, like, Howard's one of the nicest people in the world. Absolutely. Right? And Absolutely. he does it with authentic, genuine friendliness and, yeah. and, and, and good-natured fun. Yeah, yeah. And you're kind of like that crazed soccer <laughs> coach, like, let's go! You know, <laughs> there's, a, the there's char- a different approach.
1: Well, it's the, and I think, you know, I mean, I I guess that's partly because I – Feel this stuff deep in my bones, man, yeah. and like like this is and not that Howard doesn't. I, I'm not saying that. Yeah, you just it I just, comes it, out it com- differently, it, and just like that's I I just feel so much about it, right? Yeah. And I think that you know that's my parents, and I think my you know my dad passing away at a young age. I had Jim Posowitz, who's an author that's from Montana, and has written multiple books. Uh, he's basically my godfather, oh. and like just beat kind of some of this stuff into me. I would sure. just, beat is the wrong word. Osmosis probably yeah. just like listening, <laughs> um, and so I feel this deep responsibility man hmm. and and I also get a lot of energy from those crowds because people are are like, like they're fired up to be a part of something mm-hmm. and like they really feel like they are and you're giving them a voice right. in a lot of ways and you know, like all we do is like provide opportunities and then you know we're nothing without our members and so when they step up and then they get gratification pretty instantly from a lot of the work that they do it's like that gives me juice. And so I think that energy just kind of feeds off itself. But yeah, yeah I'm kind of a weirdo when I get up there. <laughs> Sometimes I forget what I'm even talking about, but it works. But uh, I think that, I think, you know, same thing. I just, what you see is what you get from me. Yeah. And there's not, you know, and like I'm an Irish kid, so I wear my, you know, emotions on my sleeve. And so I think that comes out as well.
0: You know, another similarity, you talk about, um, you know, you and Howard kind of have a mentor mentee relationship in yeah. some regards. You know, the thing that I see, you got two kids and Howard has two boys yep. and you know when either of you guys get up on stage and start talking about your kids like the the teardrops start coming right oh, i yeah. mean you can see very clearly how much passing on a better place um through what you do for your kids means to both of you and t- tell us a little bit about your family
1: yeah i mean i i mean i think to me before I talk about my family, I, you know, this this thing that we're talking about, this public lands or conservation in general mm. in this country that is very unique, it's only like 120, 130 years old. When you think about the Boone and Crockett Club that was formed in 1887, right? Like, that's like our first conservation organization. So 130 years old. Like, this experiment, like, we we're here at this point. We have to do our part in our jobs to make sure that, you know... My kids at least have something to fight for if they want to do that, right? right. Like, but just give them the opportunity to be able to do that. And, you know, that idea of making it better. Yes, absolutely. But, I, like, I feel deeply committed to that, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, I mean, and I think that's much bigger than BHA. Like, I, like no matter what, like, I'm going to be working on this in some way. Right. Um, but family-wise, man, like, I got two young kids. Uh, one's 11, Sydney Clare um said for president is their hashtag <laughs> um and uh, and then Colin and Colin's eight and like just an example is we went out ice fishing this weekend they each brought a friend and so we've been ice fishing pretty consistently for about five years and I didn't really grow up doing it but we've really gotten into it and the right. kids love it and it's pretty easy to do and it's you know we don't wake up early we go in the middle of the day which some ice fishermen are going to tell me I'm dumb but like we catch fish right and so we, uh, we're out on Sunday, and we're fishing, and, like, these kids are there. I've never fished before, and my kids just kind of take over them and, and are the experts and, like, are, like, teaching them. And, you know, Sydney has been trying to steal the microphone from me when I've been up <laughs> preaching for a long time, man. And, like, so she deeply thinks when you ask her what she wants to be, she wants to be a biologist or a politician. And I'm, I'm like, how about you be both? Because back to your question earlier we need more people to have biological backgrounds that are making decisions for us especially when it comes to natural resources and so but no I mean I the kids piece and again like I I'm not I don't want to force them to do anything um, because I think that would be the path to uh, them walking away right but, you know, I want to make sure that they have these opportunities and so that they um, have a deep appreciation for it. And even if they don't, you know, are involved in conservation later in life, um, mm-hmm. that they've had these experiences as so they cherish it yeah. and, and can have those conversations with other people. And, you know, again, like them passing it on to these two kids this weekend, you know, like when I dropped off Colin's buddy in particular, who had a bag of three fish, three trout that he, you know, proudly walked into his house with, uh, That's the first time he's caught a fish fishing, and it's the first time he's provided a meal for his family, and you think an eight-year-old will not remember, I mean, like, he's going to remember that, you know, and and the way his dad looked at him, and the way he looked at his dad, you know, like, that's, that's why we do what we do, I think, you know, is to have those kind of uh, relationships, so. Yeah, that's a little bit. Now you're making me. I, I, no, man, that. It, it, I got a little teary on that one.
0: I, you know, I see it in you and in Howard. Um, you know, I was at Rendezvous BHA Rendezvous last year in yeah. Boise, and you know, you were on the stage. You know, that was pretty crazy. Riding up to troops is a terrific event. Yeah, tons of energy. Yeah, uh, lots of great partners. Um, we're gonna work on being there. In it's in Missoula this yeah. year, right? Yep. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure we're gonna have a booth there Good. to join you. Good. We just gotta figure out who's gonna who's gonna manage at it. Yeah, yeah, Lots of hands are raised, uh, which is good. Good. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the rendezvous was awesome, and, and you know, you go from the rah-rah soccer coach to, you know, talking about your kids, and it was like, I could see that that correlation uh how Howard feels about when he talks about Marco and Ian, too. Yeah. Um, all right. We're going to get together again oh, I'm February 14th, so 15th, and 16th. Yeah. Um, for National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, Minneapolis Convention Center, brand-new attraction, Public Lands Pavilion. So rather than me setting up the what the Public Lands Pavilion is, I want to hear from you, like, wh- like, why do you hook on, you know, why Why did BHA say, yes, we're in on that? Tell me, in your view, what public the Public Lands Pavilion is going to be like.
1: I mean, I guess first piece is, is like, we said, hell yes, because – you know, these public lands belong to everybody. People are hunting pheasants and quail on public lands all the time. Sometimes they might not know exactly what that public land is, but they know that it's there and it's a place they can go. Right. And so, like, to me, like, this legacy that we've been talking about already, this public lands legacy, like, we need everybody like to make sure that that's carried on and that we want to grow that as well right and so i think it's natural partners like in a second and um you know i went hunting pheasants a couple times this year um uh, national wildlife refuge lands and also some uh, wildlife management area so do different types of public lands but like all in the same area yeah and it was like my greatest state man i was walking around out there i got my little onyx on and like it's like this great puzzle that i'm like putting together and like just roaming with my dog and so i think there's plenty of people that are listening to this that have had that same experience on public land and private land as well. But, like, this interchange of kind of those – I mean, pheasants don't know boundaries, right? Right, I mean, that's, right. Um, or quail or grouse or you oh, name it, right? Absolutely. And so right. I think that, like, that, that interconnectedness. And so I, I, I really appreciate you guys kind of recognizing the importance of public lands, you know, with this pavilion. So – That's to me to say I'm super excited and we're willing partners. What do I think it's going to be like? I think that um, the folks that are coming, I think uh, the way you described it to me and kind of (laughs) like the the different kind of sections of the pavilion, you know, and Mr. Bame is going to be there, which I'm super excited about. I like him a lot. Um, And I think the folks, you know, Sam Soholtz and like um, all the different kind of public lands groups, they're going to be there, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Like, it's this great kind of education tool, which I was kind of talking about earlier, right? Yeah. Like, the more we know about this story and, like, what we have and where we are, like, the more we can, you know, make sure that we not only protect that, but grow it going into the future. And then my favorite thing that's happening, which I may steal from you guys, which uh, <laughs> a lot of times you won't see... I mean, you'll see some original ideas out of VHA, but a lot of times it's us tweaking things that are, are working. And I think this one where the... Proceeds from the what our booth costs, mm-hmm. um, as well as merchandise that we sell uh, during the ten percent, I think that yep. we that everybody's going to be doing there. That's all going to be going to add to the public estate in Minnesota, in particular. Yeah, you know? and this is like, and that's the tell me it's like the, wild, so the build a wildlife build area a,
0: concept. So, which is rad. Yeah, yeah. So, if, if folks that when they walk into Pheasant Fest and look to their immediate left and go right to the corner of the convention center. It's going to be a footprint that we've now branded the Public Lands Pavilion. And there's a Public Lands stage. And the footprint, the booths around it are all part of this special area. And it, it like you say, all the cool kids are going to be in part. Or you said not, that. I didn't say cool kids. They, you did. But. Maybe not all the cool kids, but a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, Ron and the Hunting Dog Podcast, is going to have a role of his partners in there. Project Upland's is going to be in there. Modern Carnivores, Sportsman for the Boundary Waters, Rough Grouse Society, BHA. And A whole bunch of these groups um, have committed to, well, there's 12 groups and I'm going to mention them all by name because they've committed to donate 10% of every dime they raise at Pheasant Fest to our Build a Wildlife Area campaign. So our Build a Wildlife Area campaign, for folks that may not know, uh, was a Joe Dugan creation back in 2005 was the very first concept. And Joe... Bless his heart. Uh, you know, he saw this need to engage individuals, corporations in the public land creation component of our organization. We've got these wonderful grants with the DNR and the Fish and Wildlife Service, and that's even become greater through the Legacy Amendment in Minnesota. The, that pool of money. Right. Um, but you know, we needed the legislature in Minnesota to s- understand how important those public lands were to Minnesota. So. Joe created this concept: build a wildlife area, and if folks gave five hundred dollars of their individual dollars towards this campaign, they could put their name on the monument at the wildlife area. If companies gave a thousand or more, they could get their name on the wildlife area. That's a pretty big incentive to go Absolutely. walk a piece of ground and see at the monument. Like, hey, look at that! You yep. know, my dog's name is on there. Totally. You know, I helped create this. Totally. Um, so since 2005, the Build a Wildlife Area campaign has grown to six states, and it's created more than 13,000 acres of public land. So the the sweet piece of Pheasant Fest is you know most people look and say, well, it's a blaze orange shotgun sports show. Yeah. There's so much more. You know, we've talked about for years our landowner help desk where people can come in and sit down one-on-one with our biologists and learn about CRP or state conservation programs and actually make an impact on the land through better habitat, right? Well, this is taking it even a step further. As a result of Pheasant Fest being on the show floor for three days, we are going to create through partnerships with BHA, RGS, DNR, Fish and Wildlife Service, we are going to create a brand new wildlife area in the state of Minnesota that anybody can go hunt. That's what it's all about, right? So, so those 12 exactly. partnering companies, B, uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is contributing 10% of revenue, Rough Grouse Society, Duluth Pack, Filson, Hunt to Eat, Modern Carnivore, Project Upland, Sage and Breaker, Sam Soholt and the Public Lands Bus and Public Lands Tees, Sightline Provisions, Spoken Hollow Outfitters, and Sportsman for the Boundary Waters. So if you patronize any of those um, exhibitors within the Public Lands Pavilion and you make a purchase, maybe you you buy a t-shirt, a public public land owner t-shirt, Right. 10% 10% is going to go to create a brand new wildlife area. And that's something like I don't know of any other event in the country that can say, well, as a result of three days, you know, we're not just going to take our money bags and, and run. Yeah, We're going to put our money where our mouth is and create a piece of public property.
1: I mean, I I think applause to joe dugan in 2005 and for those that know joe dugan he's a character for sure and so like knowing that's where it came from like makes this even more special i think yeah um and then applause to you guys for thinking about this public lands pavilion in just this way right that i think you're right like it's super unique and again like it might not be unique for long because i may steal it from <laughs> you um, <laughs> but it's all building to our land right which i right. think is amazing you know right. and i think the benefits of that and like and i think you know, just the education piece in general that I think is going to come out of this pavilion is going to have implications, you
0: know, I think for, you know, our collective work going forward. So a preview of the stage itself. Um, Friday... Uh, there's hour-by-hour hour sessions. You've got an hour session kind of talk about the history of uh, public lands in the United States. Yeah. I've got an hour session to talk about Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's role in creating acres that, like Build a Wildlife Area and walk-in programs, you know, where we see ourselves in the public land um, kind of mission out there. Yeah. Then we've got um, a panel of, uh, about hunting rough grouse and pheasants on public lands on Friday with you know guys like Ronnie Bame yep. and Nick Larson from Project Upland, Tom Carpenter, our editor, um, Andrew Vavra, who you know yeah, well yeah. from uh, the Boundary Waters trip, and Jared Wickland, and there's a whole bunch of great folks on the panel. Saturday, we're going to do some of the same things, but we've also got... Uh, Rob Driesline, who you know, uh, yep. editor of Outdoor News, lined up to moderate kind of a state of Minnesota public lands, that which includes Jamie Becker-Finn, a state legislator, uh, as well as Sarah Strawman, who's the DNR commissioner, uh, among some other folks. And then kind of the, the cherry on top of the Sunday-Saturday is our State of the Union public lands um, panel, which includes you, Howard, Ben Jones, the president and CEO of RGS, and Whit Fosberg from uh, TRCP. So, yeah. I don't think you guys have ever been assembled on a stage to talk about public lands before. Not either. that,
1: not that group, no. And I, I think it's like it's awesome, and I love this opportunity. And, um, you know, I think again, like about just the educational opportunities that come out of this, and then the ability. I think I said this to some of the pro- folks at Project Upland, but. You know, hunting grouse in particular, upland birds, like you can have, you know, a five thousand dollar dog. You can walk out there with a five thousand dollar shotgun, and you can go, you know, on some private property that costs ten grand to go hunt. You know, like a lease or something. Right. But you can also go out there with a mutt that you picked up from the you know the pound that's just starting to hunt or no dog or no dog with an 870 that cost you a couple hundred bucks on public land and go walk around aimlessly and just try to try to figure it out right and i think that's that kind of continuum is like from the very high end to the very low end and everything in between that these kind of public lands provide right Right these opportunities are there and i so like to me um they're important to everybody
0: and so the final piece of the public land stage on Sunday, we've got representatives from Iowa, Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota, Nebraska, um, giving kind of a, um, an overview of the public lands opportunities to bird hunt in their state. So if you get a hankering to go chase quail in Nebraska, John Locks is going to be there to give you a rundown that's of cool. walk-in programs, open fields and waters program, WPAs, state yeah. areas that exist, um, all sorts of different ways to take advantage of public lands, to build your own rooster road trip, if you will. Um, yeah. So that's Sunday's lineup. And I did miss, um, you know, I mentioned there's a grouse and pheasant panel on, s- on Friday. Friday, also on Saturday, there's also a quail panel on Sunday as cool. well. So uh, if you have any appetite to uh, you know, chase quail on public lands, we're going to have Bill White from Missouri, John Locks from uh, Nebraska, Tim Korn from Illinois, and Chad Love from Oklahoma on that Sweet. panel. So a wide range of uh, public lands quail hunting opportunities as well.
1: It's awesome, and I I think, you know, the whole uh, kind of the rooster road trip you guys did on public lands this year, you know, and, like, this idea that there's these places that we can still go and just, like, explore, like, sight unseen, like, it's pretty cool, man. I mean, I, I think we all have our spots. Um, that we go to that are familiar and like they kind of are the rhythms of our life a little bit, right? Like we just feel natural there. That's also really cool going to these places where you've never been before and trying to figure it out, you know? And I think that's uh, something that the public lands uh, provide and then Upland Birdhunting in particular. I mean, like that; those opportunities are very similar To the same opportunities i mean roosevelt came out and and hunted upland birds you know with his brother and like just ambled across the prairie man and like it's not the same but there's some places that is pretty close yeah
0: you yeah not only you learn about different types of hunting learning how to be a better bird hunter but as you mentioned through a number of you know caveats in this conversation is you learn about yourself oh absolutely And which is what roosevelt learned when he went to north dakota and absolutely that's you know You want to call it public lands. You want to call it state forests, grass, national grasslands. You know, these places are gems on the landscape and they belong to all of us.
1: Yeah. And i even like, you know, the, you mentioned the walk-in areas, you know, like block management in Montana or access, yes, in Idaho, or I mean, all these different programs that are awesome these public opportunities on private land i would almost you know that's not part of that 640 million acres but it's like this awesome addition right that's like these places where you go and you drive around you look for those signs and like then you can go you know and it's like thank thank you to all those private landowners that are providing us that
0: opportunity no doubt about it thanks to the landowners and thanks to the agencies and thanks you know to the federal farm bill for largely creating the platform that made this you know that that uh those different programs work
1: Yeah, was that's one of my ones in my career that when I first started at Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Remember, like, that Open Fields piece was something that we were working on. And then now to see that actually, you know, funded and programs that are more robust now or even started now because of that, like, that's pretty darn cool, man.
0: The only thing that I have a bone to pick about that whole thing is, like, why did they change the name away from Open Fields? (laughs) You know, now it's another darned acronym. It's so bad. VPA HIP. I mean, it sounds like a venereal disease. (laughs) It
1: does. (laughs) That and, like, adult onset honey need to change. Like, because they both sound, like, really bad. Disease. They don't want. They're both amazing things, right?
0: I know. Let's just go back to open fields and everybody knows what it refers to, and yeah. everybody can embrace it.
1: Yeah, you can't put uh, VP whatever all that on a T-shirt either, right? I like know. you know, you can put open fields on a
0: T-shirt, like that's pretty easy, right? You can, but nobody will buy it, you know, right? Fair. fair. <laughs> Land, thank you very much for uh well A joining me this morning, but then also uh thanks for being a part of Pheasant Fest. I am really jacked to have you guys and RGS, you know, walking arm in arm yeah. uh, protecting our uplands, creating more habitat uh, through the Build of Wildlife area for our uplands and our upland uh hunters and conservation out there. It's it's great to see kind of this level of collaborativeness between all of our groups.
1: I would totally agree. And, um, you know, I've uh, I've become a Pheasants Forever member and so uh, glad to be part of the family. And uh, I think that this pheasants fest and the public lands pavilion like we've already been working together but i think this is gonna like just kind of uh put some gasoline on that fire since we've been talking about fires and this thing's gonna <laughs> burn pretty hot for a while
0: yeah, there might be a campfire at some point in minneapolis huh? hopefully it's it wasn't freezing. started by me it wasn't <laughs> started by me <laughs> 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 all right dude thank you very much for oh you're welcome i uh, very much appreciate it all right, folks, uh, you can learn more about the Public Lands Pavilion on our website. Uh, just look, uh, search Public Lands Pavilion or go to pheasantfest.org. You can see the lineup of speakers and all the participating exhibitors that are going to help us create a brand new public wildlife area. Uh, As a result of Pheasant Fest, uh, happening February 14th, 15th, and 16th. Tickets available at pheasantfest.org. I hope to see you there. Land will be on the stage. I will be on the stage. We'd love to talk with you after uh, after we get done speaking there, too. Uh, Thanks for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast. And as always, follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.